What makes someone a hero? Someone who's prepared to give up part of their life for someone else. It could be like different meanings. Sacrifice. Humility. Courage. You're acting the wrong person. We are heroes. My parents are my, <laughs> my heroes. Everybody is a hero, so I don't need a, a special one. A number of British reporters in Syria at the moment. I don't believe in heroes. This is Ordinary Heroes, small stories about extraordinary choices. <laughs> Let's get started. 1984 was my uh, senior year of high school. I graduated in 85. I bought uh, tickets to see Whitesnake. I saw David Coverdale, the lead singer of Whitesnake, and I just saw the impact that he had on women in the crowd, and I immediately knew I had to start a rock band. So you get to have this great lifestyle where you're partying and you're having fun and you're playing rock and roll. I mean, this is, there's no better gig on earth. Except, there was one problem. My brother and uh, one of his friends, we started it immediately, like 17 years old, and started playing in bars. Were you we, good? we were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> we were awful. I mean, there were times that we, we would play all the time, though, yeah. and we rehearsed with the same work ethic that I had everywhere else. So we rehearsed a lot and we wrote a lot, but we were not good. But despite his own admission that they were pretty terrible, 19 or 20, we were playing the biggest clubs in Columbus. We could fill those clubs. So I packed up his stuff and moved to Los Angeles, listening to Def Leppard along the drive. Um, Matt Williamson, producer here. Minor editorial correction. Turns out, after I fact-checked Dan's statement, Anthony was listening to Journey, not Def Leppard. Anyways, back to the story. Anthony moved out first, all alone. I moved to L.A. by myself because the rest of the band wasn't ready to move and make that kind of commitment to go to L.A. Mm -hmm. And I got a job working for another staffing firm mm -hmm. called Olsten. They're a $4 billion company. And uh, that was my day job. Eventually, a bunch of guys from Columbus came out. We were playing. We just started gigging, and everybody just broke down in L.A. and just thought, this is too hard. We're all going home. He was alone. He auditioned for other bands, but nothing really panned out. And as if life wasn't hard enough, the staffing firm forced him into a more traditional sales role. One of these evenings, and uh, after he'd gotten off a busy day of work, coming up the steps, like so many hundreds of times before, to my apartment in Brentwood one day, I Being strapped into the back of an ambulance. 
restrained. restrained. So when I came so to, I, came I was to, literally was restrained. You know, when you get strapped into an ambulance, your arms are restrained, your legs are restrained. And I totally, I mean, I totally flipped out. And I thought that I was being taken by police or something. I had no idea how I got there. I resisted and I tried to break through the restraints, which is impossible. You're not going anywhere. I did what I do best, which is talk my way out of trouble. So I started talking my way out of it, saying, listen, I know my rights. You can't take me against my rights. I haven't done anything wrong. You know, you can't take me. And in California, if you ask to be let out of an ambulance, they have to let you out in California. I didn't really know my rights, but I'm saying words that sound this way. He said, if I ask to be let out, you have to let me out. I haven't done anything wrong. And one of the paramedics is saying, listen, you had a grand mal seizure. We're not abducting you. We're trying to help you. We're trying to help you. And he keeps telling me, we're trying to help you. You had a seizure. I walk I, I into, walk into my, apartment my apartment and the, and the paramedic literally follows, literally me, follows in me in without me inviting without him in. I mean, he's just following me because I'm disoriented. disoriented. And one of them and one corners, of them corners me. me. And, 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 and I remember the I remember words he said because he, he tried to get my attention. And it's hard to get your attention when you're in this disoriented state. And he said, all right, you asshole. What time do you get home from work? And I said, I get home at 5.30. And he said, what time is it? And I looked at my watch, and it was 6.15. And he said, where have you been for 45 minutes? And it dawned on me I had no clue where I was. But even though he was starting to realize something terrible had happened, and his landlady, who was the one who had called the ambulance in the first place, was pleading with him to go to the hospital, he wasn't going to the hospital. Finally, he consented to letting one of his neighbors take him to the UCLA Medical Center, a few minutes away from his apartment. I didn't know him well. I didn't know him well. But I, I knew my neighbor well enough that I preferred to go with him rather than the paramedics. So I went in his car. He took me with the ambulance following us because I refused to get into the ambulance uh, after, after having been strapped in it, it was, it was too frightening of a proposition at that time. And after he went through a CAT scan, the doctors immediately admitted him to the hospital. At this point, though, I'm starting to get a grip on what's happened. I recognize that the entire right side of my tongue is damaged, and it was from biting it so hard when I had the seizure. So it's the yeah. whole right side yeah. and the entire length of it has been destroyed from me having an epileptic seizure and, yeah. and you're literally biting down on the tongue so hard I've, I've mangled the, the right part of it. And when the doctor came in, he learned that his tongue wasn't the only problem. When the doctor comes in, and just like on TV, you've got the big lights, you know, the light board up and they put the charts up and, and it's a young doctor at UCLA. I wish I could remember his name, but he, he says, this is a mass on the right front temporal lobe of your brain, and it looks like cancer, and we're going to need to cut off the front right part of your brain. So Anthony, always headstrong, or what others might call belligerent, decided to ask for a second opinion. So he goes to a new doctor, who says, and he said, listen, we will run the tests tomorrow to see if it could be an AVM. By the way, an AVM is an arteriovenous malformation. 
It's in basically an abnormal connection between arteries and veins. And it's not unusual for them to be in the brain, but this would be unusual in its size. And uh, basically what we'll do is we'll take a tube through your femoral artery and we'll shoot a dye through your brain and all the veins will show up on this white screen. And if it's an AVM, instead of looking like a mass, it'll look like somebody took a road map and just smashed all the roads together into a ball. The next morning they take me in and they, they, you're not sedated, but you're, they give you something so that you're, you're high enough that you don't mind whatever they do to you, right? And they said, what do you want to listen to? I remember saying, the Rolling Stones, and they're like, all we have is the Beatles. And I remember the White Album being played, and I'm sitting on, I'm laying down, and they take a tube through the artery, and I'm watching the white screen next to me as all the arteries show up looking perfect, looking perfect. And this goes on for an uncomfortably long time. And I don't see... I don't see the roadmap all scrunched together. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And then finally, I see the roadmap all scrunched together. Into that knot. And it shows up as a big knot. And I see it and I remember saying, that's an AVM. And they said, that's an AVM. Of course, the solution wasn't as simple as popping a couple of pills and you're golden. Anthony had to go through two different intense surgeries to try to remove the AVM. And as the day of the surgery draws near, and he's signing the paperwork, releasing the hospital from fault should the worst happen. This is the part where you start getting the life lessons. Because there's paperwork that you have to fill out when you have a major surgery that says, you know, we're going to do our best, but we're not responsible for anything that happens. And so my mom, who's this stoic woman, you know, of five foot one inches tall, that's raising four kids, who was raised by a single mom, and, I mean, I've never seen her shaken, ever. I've never seen her shaken, no matter what I put her through as a kid, never. And I'm signing the paperwork, and she's looking over my shoulder, and I see tears streaming down her face. And, and at that point, I got, at 25 years old, I wasn't smart, uh, but I saw something. And what I saw was, this has nothing to do with me. This is hurting the people around me more than it's hurting me. And I can go through this, but I have to go through this in a way that protects the people around me from having to go through it. But the surgery was successful. At least it was sort of successful. When they went in to remove the AVN, parts of his surrounding brain were bruised. And the doctors knew he'd always have seizures if pieces of the AVM were still left in there. So they, they had to remove a fair portion of brain to, to make sure that that didn't happen. A large chunk of his right temporal lobe, which helps control his intellect, long-term memory, his ability to categorize objects, you get the point. And recovery got really gnarly for a while. Phenobarbital, that's the first anticonvulsant they gave me, which is 
literally an elephant tranquilizer. And that caused him to get angry, like problematically angry. So he popped over into his doctor's office to talk about weaning himself off the drug. And uh, she said, you can do that. You need to be careful. But I recognize they're never going to let me off no matter what I do. And I started to wean myself off and immediately felt better after not taking the anticonvulsants. And I had this reaction where after having a piece of brain cut off, I started reading a book a day. Seriously, a book a day. I mean, I was literally reading a book a day. And I went to my neurologist and I said, um, my brain is like on fire. I must be creating new neural connections. And, and I'm, I mean, I'm reading voraciously. I'm having this great experience. And he said, there's absolutely no evidence that that's true at all. He said, you're, you're compensating because you feel like you have to do something with the brain you have left. Yeah. And, and I said, okay. That, at that time, that's when I decided to go to college. So I started college at 26. I did a four-year degree in three years, taking 18, 21 credit hours a semester and still reading a book a day outside of that. At this point, he was at Capital University in Columbus, Ohio. My advisor at Capital said, you like politics and you like history and you like writing, you should take the LSAT. I said, I'll do that. What is well, it? I'm reading a book a day. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't know what it was. And he goes, what's the law school ad- admission test? He goes, you should think about that. So I took the test and I never thought anything more of it. And then I got a letter saying, you won the Dean's Academic Scholarship to, to law school at Capitol. Wow. I was reading a book a week during law school in addition to the law school reading. And then when I was there, I recognized almost immediately, like, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to do that. But I liked the education. Right. The education was right. great. And then Harvard Business School after that. When you look back at Anthony's life, you see a series of events that seem unrelated. He has a stroke, gets super angry, decides to go to college, reads a massive number of books. But when you dig deeper, what you really see is a man who's headstrong, mentally in the sense that he's unwilling to give up. So he's stubborn, but also in the sense that his psychological head game is strong. He knows what it takes to be successful and is willing to work and work and work until he gets there. If you want to learn more about seeing them for their 30th anniversary live in concert, head over to OrdinaryHeroesPodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Leave Anthony a comment. Say hey. And sign up to get notified of new stories as we share them. By the way, if you have your own ordinary hero you think I should talk to, you can find me at, at @DanWaldo on Twitter. In the meantime, stay edgy, be awesome.